Hello and welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. Joining me this week is Addy Ann Hang. Hello. Hi, welcome back again, Addy. It's good to be back, especially after um, last time. Yeah, yeah. The the listeners, you you wouldn't know this, but um, the last episode, Audie Murphy, was actually Addy's episode, and we sat and recorded it. I read out the story, Addy loved it, had great reactions, and then there was a technical issue, and it didn't record any of his side. So... I had to go and re-record it with Stacy. So <laughs> this is Addie's makeup episode to say sorry. I hope Stacy enjoyed her smoothie mango chocolates. It sounded really bitchy, but I actually hope she enjoyed it because that sounds delicious. Yeah, they did sound pretty good, didn't they? <laughs> hey, Stacy, if you want, can you send me some? Amy knows my address. Well, fingers crossed this will work this time. I'm sure if people are listening to it right now, it means they did, but... Are you ready for your new story? Yes. Awesome. Right. Let's see what I've got for you this time. You don't know? Gohan chose the topic this week. Oh, I should so do that. Just put a few topics in a hat and get him to pull one out and that's what we'll do. For people unaware, Gohan is Amy's bunny. My bunny. He is awesome. He's really cute. And... As I said to Stacy in the last episode that I sent her bunny pictures, I actually did after the episode. So if anyone wants bunny pictures, let us know on our social media and I can start putting bunny pictures on there too. Because whilst I am biased, I'm going to say he's damn cute and they are awesome to look at. I am slightly less biased. Slightly. And he is damn cute. A quick message to our listeners from our friend and guest Holly Rose about the Cosplay Journal, a coffee table magazine focusing on the diversity and craft of cosplay. Released on the 11th of June, the Cosplay Journal wants to show that not only can anyone be involved in cosplay, but that everyone is capable of learning new skills, creating amazing things, and bringing joy into their own and other people's lives through the art of costume making. The first issue features craft focus articles on sewing, armor building and makeup, as well as interviews with some incredible cosplayers who have taken their own paths with their hobby, some becoming professionals, some simply being the perfectionist amateur. They ask, are cosplay guests worth it in their opinion piece and give readers a look into the everyday lives of cosplayers to show you the hard work that goes into these wonderful creations. All of this is accompanied by images of cosplayers from around the UK, showcasing the amazing skills and artistry from the cosplay community. So make sure that you head over to Amazon to pre-order your copy of the Cosplay Journal to ensure that you don't miss out. Molasses is a viscous product resulting from refining sugarcane or sugar beets into water. Uh, is that is is that the person? Are we talking about what? <laughs> you'll, you'll find out. Okay. The English term molasses comes from the Portuguese melaco, which is in turn derived from the Latin mel, meaning honey. 
molasses was first seen in print in 1582 in a Portuguese book heralding the conquest of the West Indies. I can tell you're very confused by what's going on, aren't you? If you could only see my face. Molasses had been used much earlier than this, however, originating as early as 500 BC in India, where it was created from sugarcane. In the 17th century, it was used in order to trade for slaves being bought from Africa to the Caribbean. The molasses were then carried to New England in colonial America, where much of it was turned into rum, some of which was then sent back to Africa. That is a very weird trade. Yeah, it was sort of known as the Triangle Trade, which is a whole other topic about the slave trade and how it worked, which is horribly depressing, but a fascinating history into how it all worked from a politics point of view. So if you're looking for something really depressing to read, it's a good read. I, I do have to say that slaves uh, for molasses does not sound fair. Slaves in general just isn't fair. Yeah, but you're trading the byproduct of sugar. It's not even the sugar cane. You're trading the byproduct. Yeah, but it's used to make rum, and rum is great. That's why they wanted it. Oh, okay. In March 1733, the Molasses Act of Parliament of Great Britain came into effect. The act imposed a tax of six pence per gallon on imports of molasses from non-English colonies. Parliament created the act largely at the insistence of large plantation owners in the British West Indies. Lobbyists. The act was not passed for the purpose of raising revenue, but rather to regulate trade by making British products cheaper than those from French West Indies. The Molasses Act greatly affected the significant colonial molasses trade. Largely opposed by American colonists, the tax was rarely paid, and smuggling to avoid it was prominent. If actually collected, the tax would have effectively closed that source to New England and destroyed much of the rum industry. Yet smuggling, bribery, or intimidation of customs officials effectively nullified the law. Isn't If you bribe an, a, a person working at customs, wouldn't it just be cheaper to pay the tax? Depends on the situation. This one, they wouldn't even let it in at all, so you know they, they would tax it confiscate it from certain areas and whatnot there's i think they just wanted to break the law more than anything else rather than pay the tax just to fuck over parliament as well there's that whole factor okay then if that's what their desire is carry on fucking parliament is is very good historian john c miller wrote against the molasses act americans had only their smugglers to depend upon but these redoubtable gentry proved more than a match for the british after a brief effort to enforce the act in Massachusetts in the 1740s, the English government tactically accepted defeat and foreign molasses was smuggled into the northern colonies in ever-increasing quantity. Thus, the New England merchants survived, but only by nullifying an act of Parliament. The growing corruption of local officials and disrespect of British laws caused by the act, and others like it, such as the Stamp Act or the Townsend Act, eventually led to the American Revolution in 1776. The Molasses Act was replaced by the Sugar Act in 1764. This act halved the tax rate, but was accompanied by British intent to actually collect the tax this time. Up until the 1880s, molasses was the most popular sweetener in the United States because it was much cheaper than refined sugar. It was considered particularly tasty with salt and often eaten as a treat. Oh. <laughs> After the end of World War One. Refined sugar prices dropped drastically, resulting in the migration of consumers from molasses to white sugar crystals. 
By 1919, US per capita consumption of white sugar was twice that what it was in 1880, with most Americans completely switching from molasses to granulated white and brown sugar. One of the companies that still used molasses was the Purity Distilling Company, a firm based in Boston, Massachusetts, who specialised in the production of ethanol. Molasses was fermented to produce rum and ethanol, which could then be used to create both alcohol and as a key component in the manufacture of munitions. That sounds safe. Because of this, large quantities of molasses were regularly stored at the Purity Distilling Company. At around 12.30 in the afternoon on January 15th, 1919, a 50-foot tall and 90-foot in diameter tank containing as much as 2,300,000 US gallons of molasses collapsed. Witnesses variously reported that as it collapsed, they felt the ground shake and heard a roar, a long rumble similar to the passing of an elevated train, a tremendous crashing, a deep growling, or a thunderclap-like bang. And as the rivets shot out of the tank, they said it sounded like machine gun fire. (laughs) The collapse unleashed a wave of molasses 25 foot tall and 60 foot wide, which moved at 35 miles an hour. The molasses wave was of sufficient force to damage the girders of the adjacent Boston Elevated Railway Atlantic Avenue structure and tip a railroad car off the tracks. Author Stephen Puglio described how nearby buildings were swept off their foundations and crushed. Several of the surrounding blocks were flooded to a depth of two or three feet. It's a weird-ass tsunami. A Boston Post report said, Molasses, waist-deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form, whether it was the animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mess, showed where any life was. I am so sorry for animals right now. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. Oh, the poor horses, they were probably so confused. I think most people would probably be confused. A 25-foot-high wall of molasses suddenly washed over the city. It's yeah, not but a normal at occurrence. Know, <laughs> at least they know it's... Mo- Wait, it's not? People don't usually drown in molasses? Uh, not as a rule, no. Oh, fuck. The Boston Globe reported that people were picked up by a rush of air and hurled many feet into the air. Other people had debris hurled at them from a rush of sweet-smelling air. A truck was picked up and hurled into Boston Harbour. In total, 150 people were injured, and 21 people and several horses were killed. Some were crushed and drowned by the molasses. The wounded included people, horses, and dogs. Coffin fits became one of the most common ailments after the initial blast. In a 1983 article for the Smithsonian, Edward Park wrote of one child's experience. Walking home with his sisters from from Michelangelo's school, Anthony de Stasio was picked up by the wave and carried, tumbling on his on its crest, almost as though he was surfing. Then he grounded and the molasses rolled him like a pebble as the wave diminished. He heard his mother call his name, but couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. He passed out, then opened his eyes to find three of his four sisters staring at him. Gnarly. The first of the scene were 116 cadets under the direction of Lieutenant Commander H.J. Copeland from the USS Nantucket. 
a training ship of the Massachusetts Nautical School, which was now the Massachusetts Maritime Academy, that was docked nearby at the playground pier. They ran several blocks towards the accident, and they worked to keep the curious from getting in the way of the rescuers, while others entered into the knee-deep, sticky mess to pull out the survivors. Soon, the Boston Police, Red Cross, Army, and other Navy personnel arrived. Some nurses from the Red Cross dove into the molasses, while others tended to the injured, keeping them warm and keeping the exhausted workers fed. Many of these people worked throughout the night, and the injuries were so numerous that doctors and surgeons set up a makeshift hospital in a nearby building. Rescuers found it difficult to make their way through the syrup to help the victims. Four days elapsed before they stopped searching for victims. Many of the dead were so glazed over in molasses they were hard to even recognise. Local residents brought a class action lawsuit one of the first held in Massachusetts against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, which had bought the Purity Distillery in 1917. In spite of attempts by the company to claim that the tank had been blown up by anarchists, which was believed by some because the alcohol produced was being used in the making of munitions, a court-appointed auditor found the USIA responsible after three years of hearings. The United States Industrial Alcohol Company ultimately paid out $600,000 in out-of-court settlements, which equates to $6.5 million in today's currency. Which is still considerably nothing to a large corporation. Yeah, yeah, that's not a great deal at all. Especially consider how many people were injured and how many lives were lost. Yeah, well, the relatives of those killed received $7,000 per victim, so not a great deal of money. Wow. So that would come to $104,000 in today's money. That's bullshit. Yeah. So, uh, we're sorry your kid was drowned in molasses. Here's a hundred grand. <sighs> it's one of those things you can't put a price on human life, but it happens so often. <laughs> uh, you can't put a price on human life, but apparently you can put a price on human deaths. And a discounted one as well. Firefighters initially tried to clear the molasses with fresh water, but found that this did not work. Surprise, surprise. Cleanup crews eventually used salt water from the fireboats to wash the molasses away and use sand to try and absorb it. Couldn't they just, like, let it sit for a few days till it fermented and then get, like, sea, like, urchins to drink it or something? So you just want to cover Boston in sea urchins for years? <laughs> I don't know, like, with the <laughs> amount of... I mean, Boston is full now with sea urchins. Have you been there? That's all they are. Sea urchins and students. Yes, but this is still 2.3 million gallons of molasses. It's going to take a long while for sea urchins to clean it up. I don't know, like two weeks? And then you've got sea urchins everywhere. How are you going to clean up the sea urchins? With water. That's when you can use the water. It's way easier to move people with water than molasses with water. Come on, Amy. Physics. The harbour was brown with molasses until the following summer, and the cleanup in the immediate area took weeks, with more than 300 people contributing to the effort. Contributing, stealing molasses, same shit. The cleanup in the rest of the greater Boston area and its suburbs would take an indefinitely longer period. Rescue workers, cleanup crews, and sightseers had tracked molasses through the streets and spread it to subway platforms, to the seats inside trains and streetcars to pay telephone, handsets, homes, and countless other places. It's almost like people need to walk on those streets. Some people said everything a Bostonian touched 
was sticky. <laughs> oh, there were probably so many bugs. <laughs> oh, I can't remember if this is actually in. I don't think it is, but um, one of the things I said was that even decades later, residents said that if it was a hot enough day, you could actually still smell the molasses. It was just everywhere. No, <laughs> no dudes, you just have to shower. I know Bostonians aren't used to it, but you guys just have to shower. As stated earlier, the United States Industrial Alcohol Company was quick to blame anarchists for the disaster. The company claimed that anarchists must have sabotaged the tank by detonating a bomb. This theory was quickly discounted. Another theory explained that the molasses had fermented inside the tank, which led to the explosion. Investigators soon found the real culprit, though. Shoddy construction work. Oh, our favourite thing. The company had been in such a hurry to get the tank built back in 1915 that it had cut corners. Of course. Modern studies have found that the tank walls were both too thin and made of a steel that was too brittle to withstand the volume of molasses. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Nearby residents reported that the tank had leaked since its construction. Rather than fix the problem, the United States Industrial Alcohol Company painted the tank brown so that the leaks wouldn't be noticeable. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> it was a bomb by anarchists. It was nothing like our own doing. What do you mean you can prove your point? I just like the fact that it's like, shit, it leaks. Should we fix that? No, nah, just paint it brown, then you can't see the leaks. It's 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 almost genius in its stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> we we aren't gonna acknowledge the problem in any way. We're just gonna literally paint over the problem. It is acknowledging the problem though. They're acknowledging the problem and they're working very hard to ignore it. <laughs> it's like um putting tarp on a roof. You know, at some point, it's not going to be enough to hold in the rain, but there's no leakage for now. Several local residents remarked that the tank leaked so often that they were able to collect the leak and molasses in tubs for their own use at home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Several factors that occurred on that day and the previous days may have contributed to the disaster. The tank was constructed poorly and tested insufficiently. Due to the fermentation occurring within the tank, carbon dioxide production may have raised the internal pressure. The rise in local temperatures that occurred over the previous days would also have assisted in building this pressure. Records show that the air temperature rose from minus 17 to 5 degrees Celsius over that period. Wait, wait, wait. It exploded at a 5 degree Celsius weather yep holy crap oh that's just so disappointing i mean it's a major increase in temperature from minus 17 to five degrees but it's fucking five degrees yeah you'd expect a lot hotter to get an explosion it's not it's not even close to being warm no five degrees you'd still be wearing a jumper outside yeah five <laughs> degrees is freaking cold i mean it's not snowing in the streets Holy crap, the wind is cutting my cheekbones cold, but it's freaking cold. That boat deserved to blow up. The failure occurred from a manhole cover near the base of the tank, and a fatigue crack there possibly grew to the point of cruciality. What gave it away, the explosion? The tank had been filled to capacity only eight times since it was built a few years previously, putting the walls under intermittent cyclical load. 
Several authors say that the Purity Distilling Company was, or may have been, trying to outrace prohibition in the United States. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was ratified the very next day, on January 16th, and took effect one year later. Oh, that worked out well. An inquiry after the disaster revealed that Arthur Gell, who oversaw the construction, neglected basic safety tests, such as filling the tank with water to check for leaks. Surprise. If there were leaks, what would he have done to the tank? Uh, uh, painted it over with clear? <laughs> An investigation first published in 2014, applying modern engineering analysis, found that the steel was not only half as thick as it should have been for a tank its size, even with the lax standards of the day, but it also lacked manganese, and was more brittle as a result. In 2016, a team of scientists and students at Harvard University conducted extensive studies of the historic disaster, gathering data from many sources, including 1919 newspaper articles, old maps, and weather reports. The student researchers also studied the behaviour of cold corn syrup, flooding a scale model of the affected neighbourhood. The researchers concluded that the reports of the high speed of the flood were credible. Two days before the disaster, warmer molasses had been added to the tank, reducing the viscosity of the fluid. When the tank collapsed, the, the fluid cooled quickly as it spread, until it reached Boston's winter evening temperatures, and the viscosity increased dramatically. The Harvard study concluded that the molasses cooled and thickened quickly as it rushed through the streets, hampering efforts to free victims before they suffocated. The study results were presented at a November 2016 meeting of the North American Physical Society. I have to say it's a very weird research to conduct a hundred, almost a hundred years after the event occurred. To whom would it bring closure at this point? Um, I guess from a scientific point of view, it's probably one of those things they heard giant wall of molasses moves at 35 miles an hour and thought, nah, it couldn't do that and try to recreate the experiments to see if it, you know, was an over-exaggeration or if it actually did happen like that. I have to say that if they recreated that experiment in Boston, that that's a bit on the nose. United States Industrial Alcohol did not rebuild the tank. The property formerly occupied by the molasses tank and the North End Paving Company became a yard for the Boston Elevated Railway. It currently is the site of a city-owned recreational complex officially named Langone Park, featuring a Little League baseball field and bocce courts. Immediately to the east is the larger Puapolo Park with additional recreational facilities. A small plaque at the entrance to Puapolo Park, placed by the Bostonian Society, commemorates the disaster. The plaque titled, The Boston Molasses Flood, reads, On January 15th, 1919, a molasses tank at 529 Commercial Street exploded under pressure killing 21 people. A 40-foot wave of molasses buckled the elevated railway tracks, crushed buildings, and inundated the neighbourhood. Structural defects in the tank, combined with unseasonably warm temperatures, contributed to the disaster. Many laws and regulations governing construction were changed as a direct result of the disaster, including requirements for oversight by a licensed architect and civil engineer. So that's the molasses flood. Would you like to see a picture of some of the damage it caused? Yes, always. Here we go. So, why don't you describe to the listeners what you're seeing then? Just demolition. It just <laughs> looked like it just looked like someone released the Hulk and said, "Go at it." Yeah, it's full-on disaster. Just absolutely. It trashed. just looks. 
It's it's New York after the first Avengers. <laughs> okay, I'm going to send you this one here, which is firefighters in the molasses, and this picture. It it's astonishing because none of them have feet. They're just like in the molasses. It looks like they're just standing on the floor without feet, and you can actually see the molasses crystallizing on a ladder, like forming stalagmites of goo. It's crazy. This stuff. It's like everything's melting. I assume that's not what they were expecting when they joined the fire force. Fire brigade? Holy crap, here's 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 an entire house that was just picked up and moved. You see, it's not even attached to the ground anymore. I I would encourage listeners to to go onto Google and image search the Molasses Flood because the pictures are astonishing. Tidal wave of syrup. Yeah, that's that's a terrible way to go. <laughs> oh, drowning is bad enough, but when you're drowning in syrup, it's it's, it's the viscosity of it. It's, it just makes it so much more horrific. It's like drowning in your own snot. I think it'd be worse. I don't think snot's normally this thick. <laughs> I don't know, it depends on the snot. True. Well, so that is Boston's Great Molasses Flood. To date, the only molasses tidal wave that we know about. Tomorrow, commemorate these brave people and especially horses by drinking rum. It's a good excuse to drink rum. You need an excuse to drink rum? No. Okay. Because at the end of the day, these people and horses and probably dozens of flies, gave their life for this rum. And we should honor that. And also, fuck the people who built that tanker. I hope they burn in hell and that demons are pouring molasses down their throat. So if anyone has any building issues and think, oh, I can just paint over that or put a bit of carpet over this thing, it's fine. No, learn from this. Don't don't just cover over it and ignore it. It will eventually fuck you over. Get your shit fixed. <laughs> yeah, the problem is mostly if they it fucks other people over. Don't be the next person to create a tidal wave of molasses. Be responsible. Check your tankers. Well, Addy, if people enjoyed the episode, where can they find you on social media? I am on uh, Twitter and Instagram as Adi underscore Anhang. And I am part of this show sometimes, mostly to bug you. And on, uh, I'm, I guess, a lot of times on uh, Smorgasbord and on uh, Culture Board, Vulture. Well, if the listeners enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Twitter by going to at eccentric underscore earth. You can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. And we're on Instagram under Eccentric Earth. All of our social media platforms are kept up to date with news and information on new episodes, as well as little history facts. If you want to write in with any suggestions for future episodes or to get in contact with us for any reason, our email address is eccentricearth@outlook.com. You can find the show on all major podcast providers and on YouTube, so make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and a rating. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Addy, and uh, sorry about last episode, but I hope that you enjoyed this one as well. It was um, sickly sweet. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.